All right, what a bunch of young people we have today. That is a blessing. You are dismissed to go back to Jeremy and Sester's class. And uh, he is fast approaching the same numbers we have in here. That's kind of, that's good. Love to see young people. Any church that's actively growing and doing anything, the Lord, I believe, will have young people. Judges chapter 11 is where we're at today. Judges chapter 11. <coughs> a kindergarten age girl, just before it was time to school, uh, go to school, told her mother, Oh yes, I remember I was supposed to bring a t-shirt today because we're going to do uh, an imprint in class. My teacher was going to put a, an anti-drug message on a t-shirt for all of us and I'm um, supposed to take that with me to school. Of course, you know how your kids are. They don't ask you till the very last minute. And so mom is rushing frantically through the bedroom trying to find something. And she finds a t-shirt for her to take that already has a message on one side, but then uh, the other side's clear. So she says, that's enough. Sends her off to school. Well, she came back that afternoon, and again, as I mentioned, they were going to write an anti-drug message on t-shirt for all the kids to take home, and so she comes home that afternoon and happily shows off her shirt. On one side, it said, families are forever. On the other side, it said, be smart, don't start. That's what you call a mixed message, okay? If you read the book of Judges, that's almost what it feels like you're getting sometimes is mixed messages. I mean, you see these people that God uses and some of the most odd and backward, not only people, but situations that you can imagine. And uh, this is what happens to achieve God's will. If you've been here the past few weeks, you've heard some really crazy stories about driving nails through uh, the lady a jail that drove a nail uh, through the head of uh, the opponent king and the, uh, the, the, the story of Ehud, which got a little hairy at points, uh, talking about how Ehud killed Eglon, and, and uh, God using these people. But before we read our text here in Judges 11, we'll get that in a minute, I want to kind of set it up for you a little bit, what's happening in chapter 10, so that we understand when chapter 11 happens. The children of Israel, they're in a pickle uh, yet again. They have uh, they've been oppressed by Abimelech because of their idolatry. Now, in the beginning, we see Tola and Jer, two men that had risen and delivered them they judged Israel respectfully 23 years and 22 years. During that time, things were well. But uh, after they passed off the scene, now this familiar cycle starts again. We've talked about this several times already. Israel gets victory and they get delivered. And then they start to go into idolatry again. And then God oppresses them. When we serve God and we obey God, we receive the blessings of God. When we disobey Him then we remove ourselves out of under the umbrella of his protection and uh, then things that don't happen that are not so pleasant. So verse 6 of chapter 10 tells us they started to worship the gods of the heathen nations surrounding them. And, and here's what's so sickening about all this as I read this. If you go back a little bit and look at some of the stories we've already even seen, you remember Othniel helped the children of Israel get freedom against the king of Amram. Now they're worshiping his gods. Uh, we read on, Ehud uh, whipped the Moabites and the Ammonites. You remember that story. Now they're worshiping his gods. Shamgar delivered them from the Philistines. Now they're worshiping the Philistine gods. Deborah and Barak uh, defeated the Canaanites. And Jael did her part by putting a nail through a guy's head. And uh, these, all these things happened to deliver Israel. And now they're worshiping the false gods. So every time that the Israelites worship the idols of a nation, that nation ended up taking them over, oppressing them, 
and then uh, they would worship their idols even more. Is this all a coincidence? Absolutely not. When we go into idolatry, bad things happen. Chapter 10, verse 7, the Bible says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now listen to this term. He sold them, the Lord sold them, his people, into the hands of the Ammonites. Or the Philistines, I'm sorry. Now this is a strong phrase, but it's not the first time that God has used it. Uh, in Judges chapter 2, verse 14, Judges chapter 3, verse 8, and Judges chapter 4, verse 2, uh, we each we see three instances where God sold his children to the enemy. Now, if you sell a car, we all understand this concept, if you sell a car to someone, they are now free to do to that car whatever they want. Amen? It's not your car anymore. You've sold it. And so, now, it's not that God's promises are null and void, and it's not that he doesn't love his people, but they, this is on them. They have removed themselves out of underneath the protection of God's, uh, of the umbrella of God's protection, and now they find themselves in bad trouble. God, let, let listen to this concept here, because this is what we're going to touch on several times today. God let the things they had been serving begin to dominate them and rule over them. Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn there, I'm going to look at a couple of verses here. Uh, this explains the process of when this happens in our lives. Say, preacher, does this happen to us? Absolutely. Uh, he talks about it in Romans chapter 1. Uh, he speaks about uh, of people who ex exchanged, verse 23, the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. By the way, what a dumb thing to do. To stop worshiping the Creator, start worshiping the creation. It is really what's happening today in the radical uh, ideas of environmentalism, where we raise Mother Earth above people. I've read uh, different statements made by different people, like the best thing that could happen to this planet is for all the people to die off. <laughs> because of that, that's raising the Creator, created above the Creator. And so it's a dumb thing for to people to do, but they do do that. When we substitute our allegiance to an all-loving, all-knowing God for stuff, for things, what's the result? Verse 24. Uh, this is still in Romans 1. Wherefore God also gave them up to the uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. The word lust, they're an overwhelming drive, uncontrollable desire, enslavement. And the, the little term that says gave them up, God gave them up, means that God allows the things that we replace him for to become the ruling power in our lives. It's happened probably to every one of us at some point. You replace God with something, anything, and it's going to take over in your life. This is true in all of us. If, if materialism is your God, materialism will turn out to be a very cruel master in your life. Now, you would think that when a nation oppressed the Israelites, that they would hate not only the people that are oppressing them, but the gods that are oppressing, that, that, that they're serving. But even though the Ammonites had oppressed Israel in chapter 3, here is Israel serving their false gods. And what does this do? It leads them to enslavement to the Ammonites again. So despite all their pain and misery, Israel is now worshiping the idols of the people that brought them into oppression in the first place. We look at that. How dumb can they be? That's what we would ask ourselves, but wait a second. I ask you, are we any better? I believe that God has the same message for us today. God says, if you want to live for money instead of me, you go ahead and live for money, but money will then rule your life. 
It will guide your decisions. It will control your heart and emotions. And money, while it makes a great servant, makes a terrible master. And so, that, that's the warning that we could get from God even today. You cannot serve God and mammon, the Bible says. Then God also could say, if you want to live for popularity and fame instead of me, well then the approval of others will control you. It will rule over you. Your life will be shaped according to the whim of other people. I know lots of people like that, who just live by the opinion of others. Fame is a vapor. Popularity an accident. Riches take wing. On the other hand, the Bible says in Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in time of trouble. He tells us in Hebrews 13.5, Be content with such things as you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why would we trade that in for stuff? That's what the Israelites did, and we do that too sometimes. God tells us, if you want another God besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful that God is to you. Let's see how helpful and and how your life will be uh, saved and guided and instructed with that God. In fact, this is exactly what he tells the Israelites in chapter 10 when they come to him begging for help and deliverance. If you've got your Bible open, you can look at it. He says in verse 14, Go and cry to the gods which you have chosen, and let them deliver you in time of your tribulation. <laughs> he, that's a, I had to stop and reread that when I did. They come to God. God says, you've chosen other gods. Go ask them for help. You want, you want to worship them? Why don't you go to them and ask for deliverance? Hey, is that fair? Absolutely. You're going to leave me and go to them? Go to them for help. The problem is, whatever we replace God with can never really meet the needs. You can never, ever replace God. But oh, I love what happens next. In verse 15, we're still working up here. This is all introduction, and a lot of this is even free. I'm not going to charge extra for it. So, uh, Verse 15, And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned, do thou unto us, Whatsoever seemeth good unto thee, deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. They repented. Now that word repent is interesting. By the way, Judges shows us that Israelites often change their behavior to try to earn some favor with God. That's not really repentant. All the while keeping their idols for emergencies or, or keeping it as insurance. It's not the case here. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. That's what repentance is. The Bible meaning for repentance. And so we see that they said in verse 15 that we have sinned. We, we've sinned and do whatever you need to us this day. Deliver us. That's, that's a change of heart there. Now look in verse number 16. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. The second part of repentance leads to a change of action. So they were uh, repenting here. And repentance gets beneath the surface. It doesn't just uh, focus on behavior. It also does on motive. The two signs of real repentance are a sorrow for sin, not just its consequences. And the second is a sorrow over motives, not just behavioral change. Now, if you've raised kids, you know the difference. You know the difference when a child comes to you with tears in their eyes because they've done something wrong and they're repentant, they're sorry, and they confess to you. You know the difference between that and one you've busted. They still cry. Different though. They're worried about the consequence, not the sin. I was... Uh, Years ago, my three oldest girls were little at the time, and I came home. We lived, actually, for a while, uh, early in our marriage, we lived in a trailer house, and uh, one of the girls, I came home, and there was a long line where they had simply taken, basically, a magic, or a uh, uh, permanent marker, walked the whole uh, hall here, turned around, walked the whole hall here, and so there was a, a long black mark 
along the hallway. And so, judgment time came. Sat them all down on the couch, and I said, okay, who did it? I knew I didn't do it. I hoped my wife didn't do it. I was pretty sure she didn't do it. And so, I said, I knew one, the guilty party is sitting on that couch. But they're all looking at me as innocent as you can imagine. Angels, pure as the wind-driven snow. And so I said, confess. And, and uh, they wouldn't confess. I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And so I, told my, I asked my wife, you got the fingerprint kit? On it, she said. So she goes out into the kitchen, gets a cup of flour, a basting brush maybe, and heads off into the hallway. And now the kids are really scared. So I told them, and I've always told my kids, if you confess something to me, and you're, there's real sorrow and repentance, there's not going to be punishment. We'll, we'll work through it together, and maybe there's consequences. We'll work through that. But if you're busted, totally different story. So I told them at that time, in a minute, mom's going to find out through fingerprinting who's the guilty party. Now, if you tell me now and confess, this will happen. If, you, if she finds out who did it and you don't confess, that will happen. I'm going to tell you what this and that was, but that was worse than this, okay? So that will happen. And finally, one of them broke. It was me. I'm not going to tell you who it was. Your initials are Lydia Byram. Um, she, my kids always say, don't use us in illustrations. But she committed marriage and left. And so uh, I can, she's open game. Um, but there is, there is a difference when there's real repentance and just fear about something bad happening to them because they did wrong. They really repented. And so God, listen, I love this. This almost brings tears to my eyes. I see this beautiful phrase in verse 16. God's soul is grieved. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? God is grieved. Can you uh, realize along with me that when we are grieved, God is grieved as well? He feels that uh, pain that we're going through. So here is the enemy. They're all gathered at Gilgal. And in verse 18, they ask the question, Who will be the man to stand Against Who is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? And that's when we're introduced to a man named Jephthah. You're in chapter 11 now. Let's read verse number 1. A lot of, we're not going to read the whole chapter. We'll kind of pick here and then we'll talk about the other verses. But chapter one, uh, 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor and he was the son of an harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons and his wife's sons grew up and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren, and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah, and he went out with them. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said to the elders, Gilead, did not you hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are you coming to me now when you are in distress? The elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, if you'll jump down to verse number 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead, and Manasseh and passed over Mitzvah of Gilead, and from Mitzvah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whosoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over into the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Look at verse number 34. Jephthah came to Mizpah in his house, and behold, his daughter 
came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter, and it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. She said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened my mouth, thy mouth unto the Lord, do, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth, for as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even the children of Amos. Verse 39, And it came to pass at the end of the two months she returned unto her father, and he did with her according to his vow, she had vowed. Father, I pray you'd help us today as we look at this tragic story, try to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Preaching today on the message from a reject to a ruler. From a reject to a ruler. He's a surprising choice, as many of God's men are, especially throughout the book of Judges. We wouldn't expect him to be chosen. He was from the region of Gilead. Uh, he was named after Gilead, the grandson, or the region was named after Gilead, the grandson of Manasseh. It was a mountainous, fertile land. <clears throat> but it was not an easy land to uh, uh, raise crops on. And so the men of Gilead, they were not city slickers. They had calluses. They were real men. They knew how to work, and they were, uh, they were men of the land. They got their wives from FarmersOnly.com. You know the type of men I'm talking about here. But he comes from a dysfunctional home. His father also was named Gilead, whose wife is not named, but she is a very very patient and understanding woman, if we see what happens here. Because Gilead goes out, he has relations with a harlot, that harlot bears his child, and he brings that child home. Now just think how that conversation is going to go. Who's this? Well, we're going to raise this child, dear. Whose child is it? Well, it's my child. You and who else? Well, this harlot that I met and had relations with. So, I told you she's understanding because that's actually what they did. They raised this child, uh, the, uh, Jephthah. Most wives would have shot him right in the head, as they probably well should have, and would have been right. Good thing he wasn't married to J.L., amen? Wouldn't want to take a nap if he was married to J.L. But his brothers were not that understanding. In fact, in the process of time, they threw him out. Now, there's, uh, we understand many times if you've looked at family issues, where there's a will, there are family problems. And this is what they said to him. We're not going to let you inherit from our father. You're not even a legitimate son. And so they cast him out. And by the way, what did Jephthah do wrong to deserve this? He was born. That's all. He didn't do anything to deserve it as a youngster. And yet these things happened to him. The things like this drive a man <coughs> to prove himself over and over again. He was dysfunctional. He was a loser. He was a second class person. He was a reject. By the way, that's right where the devil wants you. He wants you to just reside there. He wants you to think like you're an outcast. He wants you to think you're nothing. He wants you to think you're a failure. So you never ever get to the point where you realize God's potential for your life. You just keep putting yourself down as a second class person or a loser like he did here. Well, the devil meant it for evil, but God had another plan. Jephthah turns out, uh, turning to a life of crime and joins a group of guys and attracted really like a band of outlaws and he became sort of like an underworld crime boss. That's Jephthah. From a bad background, family rejection, to an Old Testament Don Corleone gang leader. That's really what he is here. Yet God raises him up to be the savior of his people. It's amazing who God uses in the book of Judges. God uses imperfect people 
who are often a mess. By the way, show of hands here this morning. Who's got nothing wrong with them? That's good. You're honest at least. You're candidates for God to use. You don't have to have your life all together and everything perfect for God to use. He'll use you if you just let him use Jephthah. He was a mess. So the Ammonites made war on Israel, verse 4. The Gilead leaders went to Jephthah to asking him to command their army. You've got to just picture this again. Jephthah has been thrown out. We, you can't come to Christmas. You can't come to family dinners. We don't want to have anything to do with you as far as we're concerned. You're dead to us. Well, it turns out Jephthah turned into Rambo. And he's an awesome, amazing fighter. He builds a name for himself, probably with his band. And I don't know if he was the Jesse James of Judges 11. I don't know what it was, but he was an amazing leader, enough that the heads of the country came to him and said, we, we need to get Jephthah because he can kind of, he can get things done. So they come to him asking him to come deliver them. And he says, wait a second. As you can imagine, I think any of us would. I thought you hated me. I thought I wasn't good enough to live in your house. I thought I was an outcast. Now you want me just because you're in trouble? That's verse 7. See, Jephthah wasn't good enough to live with. They didn't want him around, but now they did. Jephthah's the kind of guy, you don't want to take him home to dinner to meet your parents, but you do want him if you're going to be in a fight. That's the kind of guy Jephthah is. And they're about to be in a fight, so they want Jephthah. Uh, it's, we, we kind of understand the principle. Rambo, you don't really have to like Rambo, but if you get in a bad fight, be kind of nice to have him on your side. That's where they're thinking about Jephthah here. So they come to ask him for help. Jephthah has a condition. He says, if I come, if I go to help you, I'm going to be your ruler. I'm going to be your head. And they agreed. They said, we'll make you our head. This is big, by the way. This is a, they, they wouldn't even claim him as a, one of their own, and now he's set to lead them from a reject to a ruler. Now I want to point something out here that I find interesting. Uh, the really part of the message is extra, but here's a, a, there's a similarity between the dialogue of Jephthah and them here and God and uh, them in, in chapter 10, verse 10 through 16. Uh, the Gileonites uh, presume that Jephthah's going to help them, but he makes them ask again in more humility. He makes them realize that the rescue is going to come with rule. That's almost the exact same exchange that God made with them. If we come to Him in humility, in repentance, and accept His rescue and His rule, God will come through for us. We just see it over and over and over in the Bible. But you cannot have Christ's rescue without Christ's rule. As with Ehud, Jephthah is not chosen despite his rejection and suffering. This is so important, don't miss this. He's not chosen despite his loser status. But it is through his problems, it is through his difficulties, that he has been shaped into the man that God will use. Because of his rejection, his exile from his family, he became a great fighter, he became a shrewd negotiator. Because of his unpleasant... So his unpleasant circumstances fitted him for his destiny. Let me just say that again. That's good stuff. His unpleasant circumstances fitted him for what God had for him. And, and we, are, we are people that under... Look, who doesn't have bad circumstances? We could give testimony for hours in here today about the bad circumstances. And yet, uh, understand that that's sometimes how God prepares us to be what He needs us to be. What a blessing. He's sort of a... By the way, had he been raised in comfort and ease playing video games, he would not have been prepared to be the kind of man he needed to be. He needed to have hardship. He needed to have rejection. He needed to be out in the wilderness. He needed to toughen his skills. And God did all that for him. It qualified him 
his, it, he's a picture of the shadow of a greater Savior. And Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says of Him, He came into His own, and His own received Him not. He spent time in the wilderness. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4, 15. He, he, his rejected yet righteous life prepared Him for His ultimate act of weakness, a criminal's death. It qualified Him for His greatest victory, which was defeat over sin, death, and hell, our Savior. But He too was rejected. But He was the Savior of His people. Oh, friend, listen to me today and hear this well. Your past does not render you, it does not render you invaluable to God. I have a, in my hand a $100 bill. I've wanted to do this illustration for a year, but it took me that long to raise this $100 bill. So, but this $100 bill, if you look at it, everybody in here understands that this $100 bill is worth $100, okay? Or five gallons of gas, whichever way you want to look at it. So this, this is worth $100, a $100 bill worth $100. But you don't understand something. Wait a second. This $100 bill was used in a drug deal. This is an illustration. That's not how I got it. Okay? I'm just using an illustration. You guys are so easily suspicious sometimes. I didn't do any drug deals. All right. So this $100 bill was used in a drug deal. What's it worth now? It's still worth $100. But wait a second. This $100, if I crinkle it all up and wad it up and drop it in the mud and I stomp on it and I move it around and I, I, uh, I can even tear it. It's illegal, so I'm going to right now. But I can even tear a piece off of it. And then, then you find out more further history on this $100 bill. It was not only used in a drug deal, it was used in prostitution and it was given to a Democrat's campaign. All kinds of bad things have happened to this $100 bill. I ask you, as we straighten this out, what's it worth? It's still worth $100. The value of this $100 bill is not determined by its condition. Amen? I'm going to tell you, friend, today, you are as valuable to God today as the day He created you. It does not matter if you've been sullied. It does not matter if you've been dirtied by this old world. Don't ever consider yourself worthless to God. He determines your value. And you have value to Him. Here's Jephthah. He's a reject. He's a nobody. He's a loser. And God uses him to save a nation. But let's get to the bad part. Because in all this, there's a vow. Jephthah now does something really, really dumb. He makes a vow to the Lord. Remember, he's an outcast. He's a nobody. He's an illegitimate son. Now he's on the verge of being accepted. And now, not only is he going to be accepted, but if he is victorious here, he's going to be the ruler over all these people. He's on the verge of vindication. And don't we love vindication? We love vindication. I have found, friend, that the best thing you can do is leave it up to God. Because if you obsess over vindication, you're going to live a very miserable life. But he is on the verge of it, he feels. For once and for all, he will silence his critics. They're not going to have his, their nose down on him anymore. They're not going to disinvite him to parties anymore. He's going to be the main man. And he will be somebody, finally. And so in all his excitement and all his expectation, he thought, I'm going to make a deal with God. And so he says, if he is victorious, he will sacrifice to God the first thing that comes through the doors of his house in a burnt offering. And by the way, that was not necessary. God never asked him to do that. God never asked anything of Jephthah. <coughs> Excuse me. He didn't expect anything from him. Uh, he is not giving him the victory for something in return. By the way, have you ever done this? Probably you have. Nobody here but us, so we can be honest. You're praying, Lord, I'll go to Africa as a missionary. I'll live in the jungle for the rest of my days. Just let that cop behind me tell me it's only a warning. 
or something along that line. You don't know how many people you sent to the mission field, Brother Dave, probably. Uh, you, something happens and you make a promise with God, you make a deal with God. Life is not a game, friends, where we wheel and deal with God. There are two things, though, to keep in mind concerning this idea of making deals with God. Remember, God knows you, and he knows you probably won't keep it anyway, most deals we make. And secondly, when God, what he gives you or does for you, he does so graciously. God is not in the business uh, of doing business with the human race in a for-profit manner. That's not the way he works. You do not pay what you, uh, for what you get from God, ever. You don't pay for salvation. You say, oh, but preacher, I've got to have good works, and I've got to go to church, I've got to do this, and I do that. No, no, that's not it at all. The Bible's very clear on that. For the wages of sin is death. That we, are, we are in our death. We are in death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can't earn heaven. There's no way we could because we're not good enough. And so you don't have anything that God needs anyway. All he wants is found in Micah 6, 8. And ask the Lord, what does the Lord want? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. That's all he wants. God just wants obedience. Here's a good idea for all of us. Let's promise less and do more. Amen? And make. A, but anyway, so this was a very needless vow. Look at verse number 29. The Bible says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. From this point on, the outcome is certain. By the way, no need for a vow. No need to make any promises to God. He just The outcome is certain when the Spirit of the Lord... You never hear in the Bible... Uh, of anybody, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he got smoked. It just doesn't happen. Because if God's on your side, you're in the majority. If God's on your side, it doesn't matter if you're 17 years old, never been in a battle before, and all you have is a slingshot fighting a giant that's loaded down for bear with a sword and with the armor and all that. It doesn't matter. Because if God's on your side, he'll take that little rock, he'll help it launch its uh, way into the forehead of Goliath and, and help you rock him to sleep. Amen? That's what uh, God does. He's involved, if he's on our side, we're on the winning side. Romans 8.31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Let me make this very clear, friends. There was no need for a vow. God did not say, oh, you have a sacrifice. Wonderful. I'll give you the victory. That's not the way God works. We don't have anything he needs. Well, God did give him the victory. That was his plan in, from the first place. And so he's on the way home now, Jephthah. He's on cloud nine. How far he has come in such a short time. He's went from a criminal to a commander, from a zero to a hero. He's went from a loser to a leader. He's went from a reject to a ruler. And he can't wait to tell his family. He's only got one child. It's a daughter. But boy, is he going to regale her with the stories tonight. And he's looking forward to getting home. And uh, he rounds the corner to his place. Big smile on his face. The door bursts open. And his daughter did what daughters do. She's been watching for him. She's so excited when she saw him. She came out celebrating. Daddy's home! She has the timbrels and she dances her way excitingly out to greet the returning hero. Only thing is the returning hero's not smiling anymore because the vow he made came roaring back to him. and No doubt his heart sank. He laments the reality in verse 35. I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot go back. Surprisingly, his daughter insists that he keep his word. She takes two months to mourn the life that she will not have. And then, verse 39, she returned and he did his vow. This is a terrible story. But it brings up some questions, by the way. Again, I want to remind you, I've said this in every judge's message. The Bible, its truth is brought out in these pages. The Bible is always raw and honest about men. 
If a man wrote this book, he'd probably leave some things out. The Bible doesn't. It always gives the truth about its heroes, even. And so that, and that's, by the way, very important so that when we come to the New Testament and the Bible says this man is perfect, this man is sinless, it means something. And so we see that throughout the Word of God. All right, three questions, real quickly, and then we'll close. Exactly what had Jephthah promised God? What did Jephthah promise God? I say this because if you read ten commentaries, you'll come up with ten different opinions. You know which one's right? Mine, of course. And I'm about to give it to you. Isn't that great? You don't even have to look anywhere else. You just get it right here, I kid. But some interpret this vow as Jephthah promising God an animal sacrifice, expecting an animal. I don't believe so. I'll give you three reasons. One, because it's very unlikely that a home in that time would have an animals in it. And he said, the thing that comes out from the door of my house, that's what he's talking about, and if he was talking about an animal, it's a little bit deep in the weeds, but the original language uses neuter uh, terminology here so that it isn't really talking about a person. If Jephthah had promised God an animal, by the way, thirdly, he wouldn't have seen this vow as binding for when his daughter came out. He'd have chuckled and said, <laughs> well, not what I was talking about, so that doesn't count. But he wasn't talking about an animal. I believe he was talking about human sacrifice. Uh, and we'll see that as we go along here. Others maintain that in sacrificing his daughter, in fact, this is a very popular theory out there, that he just kept her in perpetual, virgi perpetual virginity. She would never get married. And so for the rest of her life, she lived uh, without uh, being able to produce children. And of course, that being his only child, this would stop his line there. I don't think that was the case at all, because it says very plainly in verse 31, he's going to offer it up for a burnt offering. And then later it says that's what he did. So I believe just the Bible is what it says here. There's a time as we read this story when she's gone for two months and she's bewailing her virginity. By the way, if she's doing that for two months, that only makes sense if she's going to be sacrificed. Why would she take those two months if she's got the rest of her life to do it? So she does that and we kind of hope for an Isaac moment. We kind of hope God steps in and stops the plunging knife and says, wait, don't kill her, but nothing such happens because she comes back and the Bible says he did with her according to the vow that he had vowed. Maybe he expected a servant. Maybe he expected somebody else, but not his only child. These were depraved times that Jephthah's living in, and he resorted to human sacrifice. Now, second question, why did Jephthah promise this? <coughs> Deuteronomy 12.31 tells us that human sacrifice is not only wrong, it is an abomination to the Lord, and it's a wicked thing to do. There's no doubt about God's opinion, it's never okay. Why then does Jephthah make the vow? You say, oh, pastor, I know, because he was stupid. Yeah, that's one reason. Not a smart thing to do, to make this kind of vow. But I believe there are a couple of reasons, though, he did. By the way, God used him despite his stupidity, amen? You know, God doesn't use you because of your ingenuity. He uses you despite your ignorance. Let's forget, let's not keep building ourselves up into something. Man, God's lucky to have me. That's how sometimes we look at Christianity. He isn't. He uses us anyway. And so... Here's a couple of reasons I believe he did this. Uh, Jephthah has clearly been desensitized to violence and the cruelty of the pagan nations around him. This is a vivid example of how Christians can let the world squeeze them into their mold. The culture around Jephthah was so wicked, so violent, and he let that in to dwell with his other beliefs that he had. Now, I say this again. We are not that different. We're all affected by our culture. We look at Jephthah and we are disgusted, and rightly so. How could a man sacrifice his daughter? I wonder if Jephthah, by some miracle, could step into our day and take a look and see the millions of babies that we've killed, slaughtered in the womb. And uh, what if he could see the headline, I just saw 
This very morning, Senator William Smith of Maryland has proposed new legislation that would legalize abortion up to 28 days. Your baby's 27 years old, you can still kill it. I wonder if Jephthah wouldn't say, what in the wide world is wrong with these people? They're insane, they're terribly wicked. Truth is, we let our culture talk us into different things, don't we? Just as Jephthah's culture had different things going on, our culture, and, and not to say any of us would say it's okay, but we seem kind of desensitized by it. We let worldly attitudes about success and money come in and sit alongside our, our realities and our truths. We let worldly attitudes about morality and sex and marriage and all those things, we let that come in and, and shape our thinking if we're not careful. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, and be not conformed by this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Secondly, I believe Jephthah was affected by the pagan works righteousness attitude of God. Again, let me say that again because I didn't make a mistake. The pagan works righteousness idea of God. There are two religions in this world, friend. Two religions only. There's a religion that is spelled D-O-I-N-G, doing. And there's a religion that's spelled D-O-N-E, done. Those are the only two religions. And the idea of a righteousness-based, a works righteousness understanding of God. See, human sacrifice was how you could buy off a pagan god. It's how you showed him you were completely dedicated to him. But the God of the Bible only wants one kind of human sacrifice. He talks about it in Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, uh, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to him. That's the kind of sacrifice he wants. Living, not one to be killed. Obey, offering God lordship of every area in your life. By the way, this still is not to earn his mercy, but to, in gratefulness to his mercy that he's already given. Jephthah thought God would be impressed bringing him such a lavish gift. The truth is that God had already decided to save the children of Israel all the way back in chapter 10, verse 16. He had already decided to use Jephthah to do so. Chapter 11, verse 29. It was not necessary or possible to try to gain God's favor. The third question we close with this. Why? Did he keep his vow? That's the question, isn't it? Probably the hardest one to answer, but the best explanation is probably connected to the reason he made it in the first place. He kept his vow for the same reason he made his vow. Jephthah seems to have no concept of the God of grace. He sees God basically like the other sea pagan gods whose favor is earned through lavish sacrifices. Why? When he realizes that his reckless vow has trapped him, did he not simply say, God, forgive me for my foolishness, and God would have done so? The answer is he did not trust God. He did not trust the mercy of God. He seems to believe that God will strike him down if he doesn't keep it. <coughs> this is the same pagan, works right, righteousness view of God that led him to make the vow in the first place. Something he has to earn. May I say when it comes to salvation, this is still a pagan view today that many churches, even in this town, are preaching this very morning. That you have to earn God's favor. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You, we can call it sacraments. We can call it whatever we want. You've got to do all these things to earn God's favor. When the Bible says there is none righteous, there is none that seeketh after God, there is nobody that's worthy. We've all fallen short. And then the only thing we earn, we find in, in John, uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. There you go. You can earn that. Death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in Hebrews 11, I was going to have you turn there, but we're so... Over time, I'll just finish up here. I want to show you something. If you look at verse 32 of Hebrews 11, here's what it says. What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah. Yeah, you heard that right. 
Jephthah made it into the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. How in the wide world could Jephthah get into the hall of faith after he sacrificed his daughter? I know what you're thinking. Maybe he did something great in Judges 12. 12, I checked. He didn't. This is it. This is all he did. But here's a statement I want you to write down, at least in the notebook of your mind, if you don't have notes. This is so, so, so good. Maybe the book of, maybe the chapter of Hebrews 11 is not so much about great men, but a great God who uses broken and imperfect people to do a great work. May I say that again? Hebrews 11, the book of Judges, in fact, the whole Bible, it is not about great men. It is about a great God who uses broken people and imperfect people to do a great work. I love that because that means He can use me and He can use you. Isn't that a blessing? What a blessing we see in that. What can we learn from Jephthah's tragedy? We learn, first of all, that God can write straight with crooked pencil. <laughs> That's all He has to use, really. And He can still write straight. Don't mistake God's work through you as evidence that God has finished His work in you. Just because God's using you does not mean that you have arrived. Amen? He's still working in all of us. <clears throat> we also see that we're far more affected by our culture than we think we are. We need to check that once in a while. Check our sensitivities. It's easy to criticize Jephthah. We can look at him and say, I can't believe it. I mean, he had his Bible. His Bible at that time, by the way, would have been our Pentateuch, our first five books. He had his Bible. Couldn't he see that human sacrifice is wrong? He ignored his five books of the Bible. How many times have we ignored 66 books in the Bible? We're no better. Let's not point at him. We've got the same problems. Thirdly, God's people struggle to believe in a God of grace. In the Garden of Eden, the first lie of Satan was to make humans doubt that God had their best interests in mind. Since then, we've always felt that we have to control God or to pay Him or to try to deserve Him, that we can't simply trust Him to love and bless us, that we can't trust in Him alone for our salvation. It just seems like I have to do something. And there is nothing you can do. There's nothing you can offer. Isaiah tells us the very best we can offer. Our righteousness, they're like filthy rags to Him. They don't own up to Him. Not that He doesn't want us to live right. It's just not going to work as uh, trying to deserve anything. Instead of trying to earn God's favor, how about simply claiming His promise? How about going over to Romans chapter 10, verse 13, where it says, Call upon Him, call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. Something along those lines. Kind of blanked on my mind a little bit there. But we just call on Him, He saves us. Friend, if you're here today and you've never accepted the gift of salvation, if you've been trying to deserve it, it'll never happen. If you've been trying to earn it, it'll never happen. You need to accept it by faith as paid already on the cross. The gift of God is eternal life. And then, dear Christian, if you're here this morning and you have felt that you're beyond hope, God will never be able to use you because of the things you've messed up, the choices you've made, your lot in life, because of things that have happened to you, maybe in a form of abuse or other things in life, and these things have happened to you, and they take me out of the count for God. Don't you believe it for a minute. God can use every single person in here. There's a test you can do. You can do this test at home, in your bedroom, wherever you're at, at any time, to see if God is done with you or if He can still use you. You want to see the test? Go like this with me. Breathe in, now breathe out. If you can do that, He can still use you. Now when you can't do that anymore, now He's done with you. Alright? Not much you can do about that. But as long as you're breathing, friend, God still can use you. God can write straight with crooked pencils. Just give Him you. You will never know that God might have the plan from taking you, you yourself, from a reject to a ruler and do something. So if every head bowed. I don't know, friend, where this message finds you today. 
But I do know that God values you maybe greater than you value yourself. God has plans for you. He wants to use you. Would you let Him do so today? If you're here today, friend, and you've never accepted His plan of salvation, then we're going to start singing a song or uh, playing a song in a minute. The altar's open. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass anybody. But if you want to know for sure, you just come forward and uh, take my hand and let somebody take a Bible and show you for sure how you can know you're on your way to heaven. Or maybe you're here as a Christian. You just need to come down and say to the Lord, you've got me, God. You've got me. And just give yourself over. Let Him use you. Would you stand up?